this evening, we conclude our little textual topical series in the Protestant Reformation by looking at another one of the solas. As we've said before, 505 years ago tomorrow, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, he began the Protestant Reformation by challenging, fundamentally, what was unbiblical in the Roman Catholic Church. And the issue, as we said on Friday night, was really the animating issue around the 95 Theses was the issue of indulgences, these supposed pardons from purgatory, a place that within the canonical Bible is not even mentioned and is certainly not real. But the Catholic Church had built a, uh, a theology around the, uh, the, the existence of purgatory, and they used deuterocanonical texts, which uh, were the, the, the books, the intertestamental books um, between the Old and the New Testament that the Jews themselves said were not inspired. Um, but the Catholic Church, in response to the Protestant Reformation, declared as inspired because they were threatened by this doctrine of purgatory that Luther put in his crosshairs. And this doctrine of purgatory was basically a place where you go after you die, an intermediary place. And your soul goes there, and if you haven't done enough good works in your life, it's okay because you can sort of marinate it out in purgatory. But what the Catholic Church did in Luther's day was to offer a quick exit out of purgatory. And they had famous slogans, you know, as soon as they coin the coffer rings, out of purgatory, your soul springs. And I gave you many examples of that kind of marketing strategy that they had uh, there. One of the things we also observed on Friday was that this doctrine of indulgences is still present in the Catholic Church today. More recently, Pope Francis declared a, a year of jubilee, and he added that you could indeed gain indulgences again. But this time, it was with the 21st century twist. As I said on Friday, if you followed him on Twitter, you would be granted indulgences. Now, Luther's ultimate problem with indulgences came down to the fact that they relied on an invalid doctrine that was not in the scripture, not in the Bible. And the church was actually using this doctrine of purgatory to basically line their coffers. They had great ambitious plans. As we said on Friday, the Rome of Luther's day was a place like Las Vegas. It was not a place that was uh, indeed a spiritual heart. In fact, there was much hypocrisy. And there were ambitious Italian uh, government uh, building plans, including St. Peter's Basilica, where Pope Francis operates out today. It's an incredibly impressive thing, if any of you have ever traveled to Vatican City, to see the amount of gold and everything else that's there. But to realize that somebody had to pay for that, and it was the German peasants and other European uh, peasants that were paying for that, thinking that in giving money, they were buying salvation for their people. And this incensed Martin Luther rightly. And he said this, he said, neither the church nor the pope can establish the articles of faith. They must come from scripture. And it's out of this that developed this Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture, God's word, not man's. If you weren't awake, you are now. Maybe we have a battery issue? No, it's flashing. It's the app itself. What's happening? It's the app. It's flashing. Oh. Okay, so it's not this? Sorry, sorry guys, apologies. I can reach without it. Is your voice showing up? The Lord will provide. Sorry, guys. It's the it's the system itself. So there's nothing we can swap out to fix. So, so I will try my best to uh, project. 
Tonight we end where the Reformation started, by looking back at this foundational theology, this foundational authority of Scripture. The Reformers cried, ad fontis, back to the sources. And there's no greater source than the Bible itself. Now, it's no wonder that we're still looking at this issue 505 years later, because it's still an issue. If you talk to anybody and you've sought to share the gospel in the last number of months and years, you will encounter it. Several years ago, I met a man named Amir. We were doing an outreach on Persian Family Day in Canada. And he came up to our booth and he told me that he had once used to believe and was quite a committed Shiite Muslim in Iran. And he wanted to just identify that he had once hated Christians. But then he said that when he was 17 that it all fell apart. And he said that for him, he started to see the contradictions in the Quran. It was then that he adopted a whole new worldview, which he identified as agnosticism. And as we discussed it further, he revealed that he believed that religion was static. And it did nothing except to bind you to an unmoving authority. He indicated that by contrast, when you were agnostic, you could actually grow and learn, evolve and improve. It sounded very enlightened. But in our conversation, I asked him how he could determine what was right for him. And his basic answer was that whatever the broader community decided was morally right. So I asked him if he thought that the Turkish Ottoman government was right to murder over a million Armenians after World War I. Or if the Nazis were right to kill millions of Jews in the Second World War. Because a majority of people in those countries at that time supported that effort. I questioned on what authority he might, as an agnostic, declare something like that wrong. As the conversation progressed, it became clear that he had no moral ground to appeal to in the conversation beyond the community consensus, which he began to admit had some serious flaws. You see, to accept agnosticism requires you to accept everything as acceptable. But because we've been created in the image of God, we know that it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to commit genocide. God has written his laws on our hearts. But as we've seen time and time again, this is easily suppressed. Can you imagine a society where genocide is approved either openly or tacitly? Sadly, it's not a theoretical question. Some of you have seen it in your lifetime. Some of you are seeing it being justified in terms of some of the actions going on in the world today. Certainly, some of you who are alive in 1994 would remember when the Hutu tribe in Africa referred to the Tutsis, their fellow human beings, as cockroaches, and then proceeded to exterminate almost a million of them in Rwanda in just a hundred days. This, brothers and sisters, is why we need way more than just man's opinions or a consensus of modern society. Man's consensus has no reliability, no moral basis, no ultimate goodness without God. We need God's word. We need the truth of the scriptures revealed by God to help us to know what is right and where we need to stand in order to grow in our relationship with our creator. This is something that neither agnosticism with its uncertainty, nor Islam, with its unknowable and false God, have. The God of the Bible is a God of relationship. He doesn't just issue rules in the sky that are disconnected from reality. The God of the Bible lays out his laws, but when man falls short, God personally intervenes by sending his only begotten son, the living word, to die on the cross, to reconcile man to God. That's the message of the Bible. It's not just a bunch of moral statements like the Quran that you're expected to use to save yourself. 
The Bible is a living history depicting a loving God who has given us his perfect law. But when man inevitably sins, the God of the Bible himself intervenes in history to save sinners who would believe in him and his word. My question to you this evening is, have you become static in your relationship with the God of the Bible? Have the scriptures lost some of the importance to you since you were first converted? Maybe some of you who have not come to faith in Christ. The question is more rightly asked. What's the big deal about the Bible? And this gets to the point. If we want to actually grow as human beings and not regress into the sinful patterns that our history shows over and over again, if we don't want to remain static in sin, we need something. We need to interact with the Bible that God gave us. Through his Holy Spirit, working in the Word, he helps us as we meditate and read the Bible to determine what is true and to find meaning and purpose and joy in our relationship with our God and our Creator. Our passage here this evening before us is a crown jewel in communicating that truth of the Scripture. It communicates that Scripture is not something static, but it is a dynamic vehicle by which God has given us to grow in sanctification. It's given by God to inform unbelievers as to their true state and to equip Christians to stand and grow in our constant battle against evil. Tonight we're going to look at Scripture in this passage, in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 3. Under four simple headings. First, Scripture is essential. We see this in verse 14 and 15. Secondly, Scripture is unique. Verse 16. Scripture is useful. Verse 16 and 17. And finally, verse 17, Scripture is completely sufficient. Well, first of all, Scripture is essential. In chapter 3... The Apostle Paul has been warning about false teachers that desire to mislead the church. And in verse 10 and following, Paul calls Timothy, by way of contrast, to follow Paul's own teaching and training. And Paul reminds Timothy of his Christian upbringing with his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, who raised him up from childhood, as it says there in verse 15, in the sacred writings. The sacred writings, the graphe. This would have been, of course, the Old Testament. They were Jewesses, and they would have instructed Timothy well in that. Timothy had a Greek father, and he had a Jewish mother. But his Jewish mother instructed him in the Torah and the Tanakh. And Paul encourages Timothy here to continue in these things, for they alone, this is the purpose, make him wise unto salvation. This is the essential nature of Scripture. Without the Word of God, we cannot come into a relationship with God. You know this for yourself in regular relationships. You can't claim a relationship with somebody if you don't talk to them. Imagine being married to someone that never talked to you. We have a relationship. Relationship involves communication. And the Word of God is God's Word to us. And we're called to take His Word, to digest it, and to pray it back to Him. And to come to him, to pour out our hearts before him in relationship. And so Timothy had grown up. He'd been blessed with this understanding because of his spiritual parentage. And this points, again, just practically, to the importance of family worship. Raising children up in the way that they should go, in the way of the scriptures. But it's interesting here the word that Paul uses, because he wasn't just talking about the source of his parentage. The implication here is that Paul received instruction from, that that Timothy received instruction from Paul himself. The from whom that we see there in verse 14 is plural. That means multiple sources from Paul, as well as from Jewish maternal influences. 
Now, it's very important that we see this. It seems like a minor point, but it's not. A much cited and common objection to, in Islam to Christianity and to the Bible is that the Bible was only authenticated by the Catholic Church at the Council of Rome in 382 AD. But our passage here points to something very different, a different reality. That even as the scriptures were written, they were being accepted as authoritative. The Old Testament was well established as the canon of scripture. And in fact, at this time, it had already been translated into Greek. There were the 70 Jewish scholars who produced what is called the Septuagint. Septuagint from 70. And it was that Bible that Jesus quoted from and the apostles quote from in the New Testament because in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Alexander the Great had taken over and Greek had become the lingua franca of everywhere. And so they translated the Hebrew Old Testament Bible into Greek so that it could be understood. But Paul, but the scriptures... There are other examples in Scripture where we see, even in the writing of the New Testament, that the words of the New Testament are being accepted as authoritative in the New Testament context as the Old Testament itself. A major example of this is in the book, is in the second book of Peter. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. And he mixes the reference between Paul's writings and the Old Testament Scriptures interchangeably, combining the two in one. This is what he says, 2 Peter 3.16. As he, that is Paul, does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, I find that passage particularly encouraging because here we have Peter admitting that it's difficult to understand Paul sometimes. I think sometimes we have a struggle with that as well. But what's significant about that passage is that he says, as they do the other scriptures. The Greek word that he uses there is graphe. Every New Testament reference in graphe is to the Old Testament. And so Peter here is putting Paul's writings, his letters, on the level of the Old Testament scriptures. And this is while they are being delivered. So this is very important for us to see. It wasn't some council 382 years later. This was as they were being delivered. And we see this elsewhere. Paul himself combines a quotation from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. You are familiar with this. This is about remunerating the pastor or the elder. In Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, he says, Do not muzzle the ox. And he conflates that. He puts that together with a saying of Jesus that was recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7. A laborer deserves wages. And he calls the two of those things, the Gospel of Luke and Deuteronomy, Scripture. You can see this if you look back at 1 Timothy 5, 18. This is what he says. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it trends out the gain, grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So you see that even within the scriptures themselves, they were being accepted as authoritative. It didn't need a, a council. And in fact, the councils that came that provided lists of books were really responding to heretical influences. They were correcting errors. They said, no, no, no. This is what has been accepted. And it wasn't until those times that it was necessary to do so because it was already accepted as the canon. From this, we can safely conclude that the New Testament was received with the same authority even as it was being written. In other words, that this word, this Bible, this New Testament is essential. And Paul here says that these scriptures have the innate ability, in verse 15, to make you wise for salvation. Now, note here that the scripture instruction does not bring, it, bring salvation, but points to it. In other words, it's not some magical book. It's not like some incantation, hocus pocus, right? 
It's not some magical thing. It's the word of God that makes you wise unto salvation. It reveals the way to be saved. And so, unlike the book of Islam, if I were to drop the Bible, or if I were to tear a page out of the Bible, it is not a sin. Because it is not a holy book. It is a book that contains the word of God. And it's that relational thing that he has given to us. It's not a magical book. It's a book that makes us wise to who God is unto salvation. It exists quite simply to point us to Christ. And Jesus himself explained this in the page of the New Testament. One of his resurrection appearances in Luke 24, he says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus here was claiming that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He is the living word. He is the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah. He's the hope of the world. Just as we look back as New Testament Christians living after Jesus' death and resurrection, we look back to the cross. So in the Old Testament, they anticipated that one would come based on the gospel proclamation who would crush the serpent's head and trusted in him. But in God's mercy, we now have a Bible that provides us with all that we need to know to be saved. The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ comes into the world to save sinners, that he died on the cross, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So first of all, scripture is essential. Do you understand that? Is that something that's lived out in your life? Do you consider the scriptures to be an essential part of your day? Is it something that you need to equip yourself? As it speaks of, of uh, in, in spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, and it talks about the breastplate of righteousness and, and the shield of faith. How do we get all of those armaments? Well, they are revealed to us in the scriptures. They are what helps us go through the difficulties, the ups and downs of our lives. And we are going naked into the day if we do not have his word to protect us and to help us. I think we've all been trained that we wouldn't get into our cars without putting on our seatbelt because that would be foolish. For the Christian, going into the day without the word of God equipping and directing our thinking is equally foolish. We need the word of God. It is indeed that which directs our steps. Scripture is essential. But secondly, Scripture is unique. Verse 16 puts it this way. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The ESV translates this very well. The Greek word here is theophanustos. And it's just a compound word. It means God, theos, and phanustos is breath. God breathed. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, what does it mean, this God breathed out scripture? Well, it's something that is distinguishing of every literature that is out there. There are lots of history books that exist. Josephus wrote a history of the Jewish people called Antiquities in the first century. But it is not the breathed out word of God. It's just a history book. This is an extraordinary claim to the uniqueness of Scripture. All that this term really means is that the inspiration of Scripture extends to the very words themselves. We call this verbal inspiration. Verbal inspiration. Not just the concepts or ideas, but that the inspiration extends to all parts of Scripture and all matters of Scripture. This is what we call plenary verbal 
inspiration. Everything. This is not achieved via mechanical dictation. Like if God was sitting on the person's shoulders. By the way, that is the view in Islam. It is believed that Muhammad was considered illiterate and he received a direct dictation from Muhammad, from, from Allah. When the Bible speaks about inspiration, it is accomplished by the Holy Spirit mediating through human personality to produce a diverse yet solidly unified inerrant message concerning his will. 2 Peter 1, 21 explains this when it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice the language here. It's not some inspired scripture. Right? It's not like, oh, I was inspired to write this to you. Sorry. <laughs> I got a little airy-fairy there. Right? No. It is... All scripture is breathed out by God. The grammatical structure here is clear in the larger context. What are the implications of this? There are a lot. But let's examine a few. First, since it's God's word, it carries more weight and freight than any written source in human history, past, present, or future. It must be taken as applied, not as we choose. It's not a choose-your-own-religion thing, but as God has revealed. Not one bit of it may be ignored. Now, that's a problem in our day, because we certainly like to pick and choose. Dr. William Evans was an evangelical pastor in the 20th century. He tried to illustrate this point. He was incredibly well-versed in the scriptures, and he memorized the entire King James Version and the New Testament in both the King James and the, author, uh, the American Standard Version. And in one case, he famously preached a sermon on the virgin birth. As many of you know, this is one of those really major doctrines that people who deny the supernatural works of God commonly object to. If you deny the virgin birth, you are not a Christian. That is that simple. And as he preached, he shouted, If we can't believe in the virgin birth, let's tear it out of the Bible. And so that's what he did. He went to the page. I won't do it here. Uh, he went there and he ripped it out of the Bible. Right? Very dramatic. He tore, and then he says, If we can't believe in the virgin birth, let's tear it out in the Bible and let's tear out anything else that's similar. And he tore out every passage that spoke of God's miraculous work from Jesus. Miracle narratives to the resurrection. Finally, he held up the only remaining portion of the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, to which he added, and this is all we have left, the Sermon on the Mount. And that has no authority for me if a divine Christ didn't preach it. And that was very powerful. He was absolutely correct. The moral law of Jesus is founded on his person. It's founded on his supernaturalness. All scripture is God-breathed and authoritative, or none of it is. And that's a very important point. And since God is perfect, and his actions are perfect, then his word must also be perfect. It's not only authoritative, it is inerrant. In its original autograph form, the Word of God is perfect. Now, we need to admit that we do not have any surviving autograph form of the Scriptures. We don't have autograph manuscripts. In other words, we don't know have the exact papyri that Paul wrote the New Testament on. We have, indeed, only copies. And then, as some modern liberal uh, interpreters have pointed out that there are some discrepancies between some of these scrolls. You might be thrown off by that. You may have heard of a guy named Bart Ehrman. Gets on The Daily Show and some of these late night talk shows and says, oh, there's 200,000 uh, variants in the New Testament. How can we possibly believe this? Right? And he's talking about all of the, uh, the, the little minor variants that are there. Now, what are they? Well, one of the things we need to think about is that they didn't have a photocopier 
back in the day when they were copying the scriptures. How did it work? Well, there was one guy that would stand and he would read it out and everybody in the room would write down and it would be like a verbal dictation. But think about that. If I were to say the word night, how would you spell that? Would you spell that night as in K-N-I-G-H-T, Knights of the Round Table? Or N-I-G-H-T as it is out there? Or maybe, if you're American, no apologies, N-I-T-E, right? You might find that there are many ways. And so those little minor variances, people say, well, that's an error. Well, it's not accurate, but we can get the sense when we compare one copy to another copy, and we can see that, yes, he means night as an N-I-G-H-T. So this is why we have what's called textual criticism, where we compare all the copies that are there. And it's vital for us to understand that with all of the textual variants that are out there, that many of the, the textual variants between the scrolls are mostly just missing a letter. So if you are not a very good speller, you might forget to add two T's in letter. But that would be considered a variant if you spelled it with one T. And none of the variants are considering or impactful on any major doctrine in Scripture. And when this gets to the point, if this is God's word, and he is all-powerful, then he will work to preserve his word. And when you think about it, it's actually staggering. A Bible that is composed of 66 books, that was written over 1,600 years, all preserved through the process. God's, God's power is uh, amazingly displayed in the demonstration of and preservation of his word. I can't get into all of the history of textual criticism, but it's, it's actually, it sounds like it might be boring, but it's actually quite fascinating. In fact, what's interesting is, of all the ancient literature, the New Testament have more manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, and more abundantly supported manuscripts than the best ten pieces of classical literature combined. Right? There are 14,000 biblical manuscripts. When you compare something like with uh, Homer's Iliad or some of the, you know, the Odyssey, some of the great poems of ancient Greek literature, we're talking about a few hundred. Whereas the Bible has 14,000 manuscripts that are there. And you can imagine there'd be a lot of copious errors there. Our confession of faith speaks to this. In chapter 1, paragraph 8, it says, The Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. This is very important for us to see. The scripture is essential and it is unique. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. It has been preserved by God. This is important because the Bible is not some choose-your-own-adventure book. It requires us to submit to God's teaching and authority. It's not sort of like, well, I like this bit and I'll ignore this bit. No. All scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is authoritative. All of it is binding on our conscience. We need consistency in our understanding and interpretation of the scriptures. That's what chapter 1 of our confession of faith really focuses on. Our confession is a secondary document, but it summarizes what scripture teaches and lays out clear principles of interpreting scripture. The rule of scripture, interpreting scripture, for example, is one of them. The clear passages of Scripture interpret the less clear passages. So we have here the Word of God that is not only essential for salvation, it is unique, breathed out, inspired Word of God that carries His own authority. What do we do then with this authority? This brings us to our third point. Scripture is essential, it is unique, it is useful. Verse 16, again. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Scripture is deemed useful under those four headings. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. 
This fourfold approach is a biblical model for Christian growth. It enables what we call progressive sanctification. The Bible is a means by which we can apply the scriptures to ourselves and grow in our understanding and our walk with God. That's ultimately why we read it. We don't read the Bible as an indulgence. It doesn't say, if you read the Bible, you'll go to heaven. No. The Bible is not a magic book. It's not hocus pocus. Right? The Bible is something that it makes us wise for salvation. It reveals God's will. It draws us into relationship with Him. To grow in our understanding and our walk. How have you grown in the last year? One way to assess that is, what have you read? What have you meditated on? The first two categories in verse 16, teaching and reproof, have to do with doctrine. Positively stated, all scripture is useful, not just Romans or Ephesians, but Leviticus, Ecclesiastes, Ezekiel. This means that all the genres of scripture, the poetry, the narrative, the letter, the apocalyptic, the law, all of it, and all the verses. This is one of the reasons why, as a Reformed church, we believe in expositional preaching. We preach consecutively through books of the Bible. And an expositional sermon is where the point of the sermon should be coming from the text itself. This requires careful study of the context to ensure that the application comes out of the text and not out of the preacher's favorite list of topics and sets of issues. This is vital. It is for teaching. The second category that he mentions there is for reproof. Where all scripture is used, not just favorite selected texts, there will also be reproof, or in other words, rebuke. It is essential to remember that reading scripture is not a merely intellectual exercise. It's meant to engage our thinking, all of our being. And it will, if it's properly meditated upon, direct our actions, literally direct our steps and our paths, literally organize our life and our priorities. It will affect who we marry. It will affect what job you take. It will affect where you live. As we read the scriptures, we are exposed to the word which penetrates us. Hebrews says the word of God is powerful. And he's speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit. It gets in you through the word. And it convicts you. It pulls you apart. It exposes you. That's the point of the word. Why do you read the Bible? You read the Bible for intellectual knowledge? No. You read the Bible because it's a cool old book? No. Why do we read the Bible? We read the Bible to change. To change. To become what God has called us to be. To come into relationship with Him. To become more like Him. The Word of God is practical. And this brings us to the second of the two categories there in verse 16. Our conduct. Correction and training. The Bible is useful for correction. When you have teaching that is faithful, you will have reproof or rebuke. And here's the thing. If we are truly Christians... When we encounter the Word of God and it comes in conflict with who we are, if we are seeking to follow and submit to God, we have to acknowledge our sin. And we have to repent. That is, turn away from our sin and turn towards God. And the Word of God is useful for confronting us and driving us to God's priority. It's not enough to hear the Word of God preached. The Word of God has to, we have to think about it. We have to apply it to our lives. I'm not up here preaching for my health. Well, I am in part, <laughs> right? But we're here. The Word of God is meant to be useful in your life. It's meant to make you think, to repent. It's also for training in righteousness. Once a believer has been taught, his sin has been rebuked and his course corrected, he can be trained. Now, what is the right way that I should go? I know the sin is wrong, but how do I follow Jesus? What do I need to do? You can't obtain heart-based obedience without real repentance. 
need to be trained in the way to go. Parents, understand this. You can get your child to do anything you want, but not get his heart. You can threaten and bribe a child to do what you want. But that's not what the scripture wants from us. That's not what God wants from us in a relationship. And it's not, hopefully, parents, what we want in our relationship with our children. We want to train them up so that they can work and function independently and make good choices that glorify God. And just as we're taught to, to teach our children, to, uh, to, to shepherd them, to help them to make good decisions so that they may seek to please God and not man, we ought to do the same thing ourselves as we consider the scriptures. How then shall we live? Right? What do we do with what we hear? Are you reading God's word? Are you earnestly searching the scriptures and asking God to search you? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Expose me. That's what David says in Psalm 139. Scripture is essential to salvation. It's unique in that it is God's breathed out word. And is useful to sanctify us and grow us up into mature Christianity. But where the faith rubber needs to hit the road, finally, is in verse 17. Scripture is also, finally, sufficient. It says here, for the man of God. This passage, by the way, forms the basis for what Paul goes on in chapter 4, verse 2, to urge Timothy to preach the word. But it can be applied generally to all Christians at large. All of us have a biblical responsibility to know the word, to search the scriptures, as the noble Bereans did, to make sure that what the man of God is saying is true. It's interesting, right? We're capable of great self-righteousness. We were talking about that this morning. And at Reformation Day, we can feel very self-righteous about the Roman Catholics. But there's a saying that I think is very challenging to that. It says, while the Roman Catholic Church has one pope, we Protestants have hundreds. And there is truth in that. We naturally gravitate to teachers. And if they're faithful teachers, that can be helpful. But even those teachers can lead us into error. We need to be checking against the scriptures. Good men have defected in key areas. One of my favorite authors who's recently passed away was J.I. Packer. He wrote Knowing God. Fantastic book if you're a new Christian. But J.I. Packer, in 1994, signed the Evangelicals and Catholics Together statement, which denied, really, the, the basic truths of justification by faith. He, he glossed over some of the distinctions between the Roman Catholic Church and the confessional Protestant Church. And he led many into error because of that. And we've seen many examples of that, sadly, in our own day. The celebrity pastor phenomenon. Brothers and sisters, we don't call you to, to, to celebrate us as pastors. John and I are only useful to you insofar as we are faithful to the scriptures. And one of the things you need to understand as a member is that you have a responsibility as you sit there in the pews to make sure that what is preached from this pulpit is faithful to the word of God. And if it's not... It is your duty to remove us from the pulpit. That is a responsibility in the congregation. The Word of God is so serious. It is so uh, authoritative. It is so essential. It is so unique. It is so useful. It is so sufficient that if it is not being preached from here, brothers and sisters, you cannot stand for that. It must be the Word of God. It says here, that it is sufficient, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, or fully equipped, as the NIV puts it. What does that mean? We may read this and say, well, that's good, I, I, I think, right? What does that mean practically? Well, I don't know, maybe you haven't thought about the implications of what it means to be fully equipped. It's actually a, stu a stupendous promise of God. It speaks of the complete 
sufficiency of God's revelation for us. We don't need Freud or Jung to tell us how to interpret human behavior. We have the searching word of God, which exposes the blackness of our hearts. And our main problem is not our childhood or our desires for dream fulfillment. Our main problem is that we are sinners in need of God's sanctifying work and presence in our life. With God's clear word, there's no longer any need for supplementation. There's no need for ecstatic visions. No need for a special word from God because we have the word of God. God's word is sufficient here. This is very important as we think about many people who start saying to themselves, well, I feel led by the Spirit to do this and, and that. Well, okay, what does the Scripture say? Check it against the Word of God, right? This is our authority. Too often our impressions and our desires covertly are expressed in this. We need to understand and trust the sufficiency of Scripture. This is so important in our day. The Word of God is sufficient. And we can rejoice in the sufficiency of Scripture, brothers and sisters. If you are, know Jesus Christ tonight, God has not left you on your own. He has provided His Word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. To be examined this evening, the righteous man lives by faith. By faith in what? It's, it's not the tax collector, that he's not a tax collector. Right? No, he lives by faith in the promises contained in the Word of God. Why do we obey the Word of God? Because God tells us and promises that he will take care of us. He tells us that his Word is sufficient. Now let me just say in conclusion, some of us really struggle with reading our devotions. And we really struggle with it and we, we we get into these things, we, we look at these, these plans that are out there, these Bible reading plans. And some people seem to thrive with McShane's plan, which has, you know, you read through the, the Bible, the New Testament, twice in a year. It's like a great big list. But other people really struggle, and it becomes kind of a, a checklist-type thing in terms of devotions. If you're struggling with your devotions tonight, and you need a little bit of a spur to maybe rethink a different approach always helps sometimes to just shake things up. It's okay if you stop what you're doing and, and try something else for a little while. Because the whole goal of your devotions is actually to help you. And if you find that you're getting stagnant, then you sometimes need a little jump start. One of the things I remember growing up that my father taught our church was how we should approach biblical meditation. And, you know, when we speak about meditation, you know, mindfulness is really there. And the whole idea of mindfulness is basically to empty yourself. But biblical meditation is the opposite. It's to fill yourself. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. My dad taught our congregation the five M's of meditation. I've mentioned them to you before. But we're not going to say OM and repeat some, some, some uh, meaningless thing. We are to read the scriptures. So the first M is mumble. Try this tomorrow when you open up your scriptures. Mumble. What do you mean mumble? You're told not to mumble when you're a kid. But it's interesting. Silent reading is a modern phenomenon. In fact, there's a, a famous passage about... Um, in, in Augustine, where he talks about Ambrose, his teacher, and he had this weird idea that he read without speaking. In the ancient world, they always read it aloud. Now, there's an advantage to reading the scriptures aloud. Don't have to be like, yelling it from, with all your lungs, but reading aloud slows you down. Right? It causes you to think more. It enables you to better process your you're not only speaking it, you're hearing it. You're engaging more of your, yourself. And so it's easier to get into. We live in a distractible world. By the way, I don't recommend using your phone, even though I do sometimes, um, to do this, because you have all these other distractions. You need to focus on the Word. Get a Bible. Just use one like them. But don't just mumble it. Seek to memorize it. 
I know, not in Sunday school anymore, getting old, don't remember things, but what does the scripture indeed say? It says, I have hidden your word in my heart, I have memorized it, why? So that I might not sin against you. When you have the word as a part of you, right? Like, if you look at some of the ancient preachers, it's almost as if you cut them, they would bleed scripture. When you know scripture, when it's a part of who, who you are, it makes you think, right? Even a fool seems wise when he keeps his tongue, right? I remember memorizing Proverbs when I was a kid. We did it in our Christian school. It was a great advantage. And those things come back to you. And they help you. Mumble, memorize, mince. Okay, he was British. Chop it up. Why does Paul say he's an apostle? What's he doing in this passage? Ask questions of what you're reading. Mumble, memorize, mince, move. I love this one. What did you read this week in the scriptures? What did it do? How did it change you? What result came out of your meditation? You need to act upon it. And then ultimately, Messiah. If the point of scripture is to bring us back to Christ, how does your meditation bring you back to Christ? Now, that's just one helpful mnemonic. Mumble, memorize, mince, move, Messiah. But it gets to our main point that the word of God is living and active. It is essential. It is unique. It is useful. It is sufficient. And we ignore this great gift to our own peril. To put it simply, the Christian has a word-centered life. Terry Johnson, a Presbyterian pastor, put it this way. He says, when we come together as a church in worship, we pray the word, we sing the word, we read the word, we preach the word, and we see the word in the sacraments. We are a word-centered people. And the church that is not focus on the scriptures is a church that is headed in the wrong direction. This is why the reformers called us back to the scriptures, back to the Bible. Brothers and sisters, we need to be disciples of the word of God because it is sufficient. And if you're an unbeliever this evening, this is your hope. The scriptures can make you wise unto salvation. Want a place to start? Start in the book of Mark. It's the simplest book. It's the one that I recommend to people who are new to Christianity. The first eight chapters of the book of Mark is, who is Jesus? Who is he? And then the last eight chapters of Mark is, what did he come to do? You want an introduction to gospel? If you want to be changed, if you want to know the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, go back to the basics. Go back to the word of God. It is sufficient. The Holy Spirit uses it. May God help us as a church to trust to believe, to delight in his word. Amen. Let's pray.